Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time. For another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, November 17th, 2011. Alright, the hard part for today was, well, trying to nail this all down and limit myself on the things I wanted to cover today. We'll see if I succeeded. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Um, we Well, we live in strange times, live in just strange times. People are making up all kinds of stuff. Now, if you follow me on Facebook or on Twitter, then you are aware that over the past few days I have been uh, having gusts of tweets and status updates that I've been sending out. Um, you know, it, it basically, it, you think what I like to do is I like to think of uh, Facebook and uh, and Twitter as an extension of the program. And so what happens is is that as I'm thinking through things, as I'm reading and researching, um, finding something that is interesting to me. Uh, that I find useful or or I've taken a a, t- a a difficult concept and tried to push it down into a concise thesis. You know, I send those uh, status updates out. And sometimes, you know, I they're like gusts of wind. You know, we, uh, living here in, uh, in central Indiana, it, it has been windy like you wouldn't believe. Holy smokes. Um, I, 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 I've commented on the fact that here in Indiana, at certain times of the year, it should be called Windiana. And uh, spring and um, fall in particular, the wind gets a little bit crazy out here. In fact, uh, we had a, a little bit of a, how do I want to put this? Uh, we, we had a little bit of a problem at the house uh, in that the, the homes here in uh, central Indiana, Indiana in the, the home that uh, we live in, uh, we've got vinyl siding, and uh, and you know something, you know when I lived in uh, Southern California, the house I lived in there had stucco, and uh, in fact all of the houses that I owned uh, over the years in uh, Southern California, the exterior was stucco. You know, it's it, and I you come out to Indiana, and uh, you're hard pressed to find a home with stucco. 
Uh, I don't even know if they do stucco out here. And, and the more I say the word stucco, the, uh, the the weirder the word is beginning to sound. Anyway, it seems like a distant memory. It's like, was it real? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm beginning to wonder if that was like somewhere far away in a dream. Anyway, so here in Indiana, we've got vinyl siding. And so... Uh, last week we had we had a zinger of a windstorm come through here. You know, sustained winds like 35 miles an hour, gusts like 50 or 60, and it blew the siding off of my house. <laughs> see, and see, you know, the, the moral of the story is is that if you don't want to have the vinyl siding blown off of your house by a windy and a storm. Uh, during the spring or the fall, then what you need to do is you need to learn how to either pray a sun stand still prayer, a shadow go backwards prayer, or now that Mark Batterson is coming out with his book on the circle maker, uh, you need maybe I needed to uh, draw a circle around my house and then pray a sun stand still prayer while hoping the shadows move backwards or something. Anyway, so. <laughs> It's, uh, there was a point to all of this, and um, it just behooves me to remember what the point was. The the issue is this: is that uh, so? It, oh, uh, now I remember. <laughs> I'm getting old, and so uh, creeping decrepitude has crept upon me in in a most inglorious manner. Anyway, the point is is that uh, when I'm sometimes when I'm tweeting, we get get you know gusts of tweets that get sent out, and uh, one of the things I've been uh, doing is uh yeah i i spend my mornings you know reading in fact i'm usually up uh between you know 5:36 in the morning and i'm reading um first part of my day is really spent reading researching i'm in my scriptures doing work in the biblical languages or working through a uh, a, uh, a a good book and years and years and years ago i had read uh, martin Chemnitz's uh books on the examination of the council of trent and it had been so long since I've read these things that, uh, you know, I had to blow the dust off the top of it. But um, I'm rereading uh, part one of uh, Martin Chemnitz's examination of the Council of Trent, and this thing is brilliant. I had forgotten what how, how much of an encyclopedic um, uh, storehouse of, uh, of the writings of the Church Fathers Martin Chemnitz was. Uh, many people... If you don't know who Martin Chemnitz was, uh, Martin Luther was like the main Luther, or the, the main Martin of Lutheranism. But uh, Lutheranism, many people say that Lutheranism wouldn't have survived if it hadn't been for the work of the second Martin, and that's Martin Chemnitz. And uh, he's written this definitive tract, this treatise, uh, set of works. It's in four volumes uh, against the uh, the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent was. Uh, Rome's response uh, to the uh, the basically the uh, the doctrines and rediscovery of the gospel of uh, of the Reformation, and they anathematized the gospel at the Council of Trent. And it's important to note that uh, I, I still to this day do not think that the, the Roman Catholic Church has actually renounced Trent. I think that uh, 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 Tridentine theology is still the main theology of the Roman Catholic Church. But um, book one really uh, begins with probably one of the best apologetic arguments I have ever read in any text uh, for the authority of the scriptures alone. It's, 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 uh, it's all in favor of sola scriptura. And the backdrop is, uh, is the Council of Trent's 
argument that uh, not everything that the uh, the apostles taught and believed was recorded in the scriptures, but that somehow it uh, that stuff was deposited into the the non-written tradition of uh, of the Catholic Church, and therefore the Church has this this repository of uh, of uh, apostolic teaching uh, within her, it, basically emblazoned in the hearts and minds and memory of uh, those in the Roman Catholic Church via uh, the teaching of unwritten tradition. And Martin Chemnitz just takes that idea and blows it out of the water just oh man it's it's like not even fair i mean, <laughs> I mean it's it would be like watching you know a nimitz uh, class aircraft carrier uh, 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 against a bathtub you know or you know uh, you know it's it just doesn't it it was it brutal anyway uh, great great stuff so one of the things i've been doing is i've been tweeting out stuff that's been coming to mind as i've been reading through and working through that so um, if you see stuff that uh, I've been writing lately or Twittering about or Facebooking uh, regarding Sola Scriptura, well, you know what the source of it is. And, and you know, if you have – in fact, um, I, l- let me put it this way, is, is that um, the, when, when, I, when you read theological books, there are some books that are just hard um and uh, if you don't know the biblical languages it's just almost uh, inaccessible and so um the the the, the uh, martin chemnitz's books on the examination of the council of trent are not like that they are very readable very accessible uh, for the layperson and just well well written well argued great stuff so you know you know, i'm i'm got to admit uh, you know it'd been a while since I had read these and so going back through them it's like going back through them the first time and and when I, as I'm reading them because of the fact that you know I have all these things in like the front of my mind you know as uh, as we continue to uh critique and scrutinize biblically scrutinize uh the teaching of many of the seeker driven uh mega church leaders uh in in the United States and abroad um it, th- this stuff is even more um relevant today now for me than it, than it was when I read it the first time and what the first time I read it was a little bit more of an academic exercise now I'm reading it going oh I can use that I can grab that oh that's a great argument I'm going to have to put that one into my apologetics quiver and and uh, yeah anyway so there you go <laughs> just refilling my tank if you would okay So let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. And I find myself kind of in a weird position today. And what I mean by that is is that um, this is the first time I can remember that um, uh, that when in in hour number two, we're going to be doing a, a sermon review. And I'm going to be reviewing a sermon from the Connection Church in Kyle, Texas. And um, I don't know who who's delivering the sermon. Um, it's not their it's not their normal pastor, and uh, I can't I cannot figure out who 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 done it. But uh, anyway, so it's it's weird. So I cannot give proper attribution. Uh, well, the, today's sermon in our sermon review in hour number two will be preached by anonymous. So yeah, I, I've never. <laughs> Never reviewed a sermon from Anonymous before, but anyway. Okay, so uh, talking about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, I've got a Patricia King update, and she's going to be discussing America in 
crisis. America in crisis. And uh, so we're going to be getting a, a little bit of a, <clears throat> a crisis view from Patricia King. I've got an Ed Stetzer uh, blog post that I want to take a look at. Um, eh, well, let's see here. I've got news uh, atheists and believers. I got a, a you know, are talking about having a secular Bible. We'll talk about that. I may ha- get to the story that uh, regarding a man who's an atheist who wants to become a military chaplain. That just sounds like so much fun. Makes perfect sense. And and then I like I said I want to get to this Ed Stetzer uh, blog post that he put up today called uh, Leadership Book Interview Bruce Ashford on Theology and Practice of Mission. Um, if you uh, read the White Horse Inn blog or Ed Stetzer's blog uh, or even the Together for the Gospel uh, uh, or the Gospel sorry the Gospel Coalition uh, blog, then you know that there is a lot of. Mm, it's 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 a it's a flashpoint debate right now um regarding uh the mission of the church and um and so he, i want to read uh stetzer's blog post today where he is uh you know where he's talking with uh bruce ashford talking about the theology his book theology and practice of mission god and the church and the nations and i want i want you to hear that um there's news and see here's the deal. I I reserve the right to just let my mind wander through which of the stories I want to get to today. But uh at the Pyromaniacs blog, um hang on a second, let me pull this up. Teampyro.blogspot.com. Uh Dan Phillips, who is uh the one of the, the other I don't know if we've have I really covered many of Dan Phillips's works. Uh, I know I've covered uh, Phil Johnson stuff. I know I've done a, a small smattering of Frank Turk uh, stuff uh, from the Pyromaniacs blogs over the year, but I'm not sure if I've ever really done a Dan Phillips uh, piece. But uh, Dan Phillips has got two pieces that um, I have got to get to. Um, uh, the first is entitled T.D. Jakes and the Like Part 1 Isn't, Un- Isn't Unclear Leader and Oxymoron. And uh, and then the follow up piece entitled T.D. Jakes and the Like Part Two: Thinking Clearly About Repentance. I, you know, in fact, I might want to get to these right after I do the Patricia King thing, and then before I do the Ed Stetzer thing. Yeah, because because um, here's the deal. I mean, there's kind of movement on the uh, on the Elephant Room conference thing, and um, and I I got a heads up today that um, that uh, a couple of blog posts from um. James McDonald's blog have gone missing. So, um, which is kind of interesting. So anyway, <laughs> I just, I mean, I'm in one of those moods where it's like, I feel like the absent minded professor and I'm beginning to wonder if I'm turning into him. Um, <laughs> oh man. <sighs> okay. So, uh, <laughs> with that, we're going to dive into the program proper, uh, you know, Fuzzy bunny slippers, you know, those do enhance your uh, listener experience. Make yourself comfortable if you can. Please keep in mind that listening to Fighting for the Faith can uh, cause a reduction in productivity if you're listening at work. So uh, you may or may not want your boss to know that you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Just something to keep in mind. Of course, if you want to enjoy an adult beverage, don't have a problem with that. Um, Keep in mind, drunkenness is a sin. You don't want to be enslaved to a gift that God has given us. That's silly. So with that, here we go. I am Patricia King, 
You know, the, the name of the video is America in Crisis. And um, if, if, if you would allow me to, uh, well, divulge, well, uh, confess uh, my thoughts when I originally saw the title of the video, uh, America in Crisis, that's the name of it. Um, and you can find it at xpmedia.com. And it was just, it was posted yesterday at the xpmedia.com website. And Patricia King is there wearing some flowery dress. Um, but as soon as I saw <laughs> the name of the video, I thought, yeah, okay, so here's the deal. I have no problem saying that the, America's in crisis, that there's, there's some, cl- there's clearly some problems going out, going on out there in the greater United States of America. No problem admitting that at all, but, um, uh, going to Patricia King for the solution to America's crisis, um, doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, it's I I think you have probably a better chance of getting decent inv- advice from a voodoo witch doctor than you do from Patricia King on how to solve the uh, the 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 crisis that that is in America at the moment. So, um it just keep in mind um my attitude towards Patricia King's advice might be just a little bit cynical. Just saying. So, uh, without any further ado, here is Patricia King talking about America in crisis. We are living in very serious times because Jesus said that in the end times, lawlessness would increase and people's love would grow cold. He did say that. But we have good news to stand on because he also said that if there is a people who is called by his name who would humble themselves and pray and seek his face and turn from their wicked ways, then he will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Now, okay, now, now you, you, you've all heard this passage before. I mean, this is the, the, these premier mission passage of the National Day of Prayer. It's uh, found in Second Chronicles chapter 7, Second Chronicles chapter 7. And before I let Patricia King completely butcher this, let's spend just a little bit of time taking a look at that passage using our three primary rules of biblical interpretation. And they are context, context, and context. Okay, so if you have your Bible, flip on over to Second Chronicles chapter 7. I'm going to begin at verse 1. The, the verse in question, by the way, is in verse 14, but uh, I want to get the greater context so you can see what's going on here. Um, and you know, I got a, I got a question from somebody recently saying, Chris, how come you always refer to the ESV as the English sanctified version? Um, well, it's just because it's a silly name. That's <laughs> some, you know, I, I started calling it that as a joke at some time years and years and years ago, and it stuck. So that's the reason why I call it the English Sanctified Version. I think I said it in the context of ribbing somebody who was a KJV only for person, but <clears throat> that that's where it comes from. So, but uh, it, it's uh, when I'm working in an English translation, that's a translation that I prefer to work in. Um, I still correct it from time to time, but um, I find it far superior to the uh, 1984 edition of the NIV, which frustrated me to no end. 
Um, I yeah. It, after I learned the biblical languages, I found myself when I was teaching. Um, you know, I, I I've taught junior high, high school, and adult Sunday school classes for years. And what I what I found is is that uh, in the uh, congregations that I've worked in, where the NIV was the standard pew Bible or the pew uh, the Bible that was available for people in Sunday school class to use, it got to the point where it was obnoxious. It drove me crazy because I would read a passage in the NIV and I'd go, wait, wait, no, that's not what it says. And then I'd find myself correcting the NIV, so it drove me crazy. But anyway, so uh, the ESV. I, I find myself rarely doing that. From time to time I do, but anyway, it's that's a different story. Anyway, um so Second Chronicles chapter seven, starting at verse one. This historically here, we're picking up the story of Solomon building the temple in Jerusalem. The temple is being completed and consecrated, and there's a big ceremony going on. There's lots of sacrifices going on. So this is kind of like the big you know, the, the building's finished. Now it's time for the temple to begin to be used for what it was created uh, to do. That That's the idea here. So Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1, here's what it says. As soon as Sol- Solomon finished his prayer, and he had just finished a prayer at the consecration of the temple, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifice before the Lord. King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. The priests stood at their post. The Levites also with the instruments for the music to the Lord that King David had made for giving thanks to the Lord. For his steadfast love endures forever. Whenever David offered praises by their ministry opposite them, the priests sounded the trumpets and all of Israel stood. Solomon consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord. For there he offered the burnt offering and the fat of the peace offering because the bronze altar Solomon had made could not hold the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat. At that time, Solomon held the feast for the seven days and all of Israel with him at a very great assembly from Lebo Hamath to the brook of Egypt, On the eighth day, they held a solemn assembly, for they had kept the dedication of the altar seven days and the feast seven days. And on the 23rd day of the 27th month, he sent the people away to their homes joyfully and glad of heart for the prosperity that the Lord had granted to David and to Solomon and to Israel, his people. Thus, Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, 
I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your throne. As I, co as I covenanted with David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man to rule Israel. Okay, now you kind of got what's going on here. God's having a conversation. So here, here's what's going on, Okay. God says, when I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. What people? Israel. He then says, if these things occur or happen, if my people who are called by my name. Now, this is important, okay? This is really important because one of the things that happens is, is this verse gets constantly ripped out of context, and it, it's the theme verse for the National Day of Prayer. Is this verse something, some kind of a formula that, you know, if a certain amount of people, you know, do, then God's going to, you know, act? If my people who are called according to my name, if they humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, even though this is a promise made specifically to the people of Israel. There's something to be said here, because what is this a picture of? This is a picture of exactly how anybody is brought to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins. Both repentance and the forgiveness of sins is right here. So here's the problem. So many people think that the, the way to fulfill this is to have a national day of prayer. Just get everybody on their knees praying to God. The reality is, is that the way this passage is fulfilled is through the proclamation of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. It's the only way it can be fulfilled today. If you think that just by getting, you know, getting enough people on their knees and praying and, and saying, oh, we're sorry, God, that's not, what's, that's not what's being talked about here. How are people brought to the point where they 
well, let's see here. If they uh, humble themselves before God, pray to God, seek his face, and turn from their wicked ways. How is that fulfilled? Answer, there's only one way now that that's fulfilled. That is fulfilled when you preach God's law to condemn sinners of their sin, to show them that they are completely wretched before God and in need of a Savior, and proclaim the forgiveness of sins won by Jesus Christ on the cross. Then God turns people brings them to repentance, has them turn from their wickedness. He forgives them and heals them. Right? And on top of it, he puts his name on them. And where is it that God puts his name on you and puts his name on me? Answer, in the waters of our baptism. Because when you're baptized, your pastor should say... I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? So when you are baptized, God's name is placed on you in the waters of baptism. So today, who are the people who are called, chosen, called by God's name, have their name on them? Answer, it's the people in the church. And what do what, what is it that they're there that God is calling us all to do? To repent, turn from our wickedness. Call and pray to the Lord, call upon his name and have our sins forgiven and be healed by him. Yeah, when you take a look at the details of what's going on in this passage, now you understand what's going on. This is a real true picture of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. The two very things which Christ commands his church to do, to proclaim in his name until he comes back. See Luke chapter 24, right? Jesus says repentance and the forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Okay. So let's see what Patricia King does with this, because in her world, all of these passages are like magic formulas. You know, you just do the proper steps of the incantation and blammo, you know, the right things happen. Here we go. That is an Old Testament promise, but it's a perpetual promise because God said it was a perpetual promise, which brings it all the way into the New Testament and even until today. Is America in crisis? Yep. I think that one of the biggest crises that we see around us is the shaking of people's faith and uh, stand for righteousness in the Lord. If there is sin in the church, then we have no salt, no preservative for the nation. If there's no sin, if there, if, if there's sin, oh man. <sighs> uh-huh, so apparently we've got to be sinless, got it? The church must stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ because as we do... We need to proclaim his righteousness and call sinners to repentance so that they would be forgiven. Then we can have weight and authority to bring blessing into the nation according to the promise of God. 
America is facing... Now notice the way she handles the text. You, well, we better be righteous so that we can be salt and light. Well, there better not be sin in the church. Otherwise, we don't have the authority. What does this have to do with anything that's in Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14? Many things. There's many things that are shaking up the nation. And yet, I personally believe... God wants this to be America's finest hour. Uh, you personally believe that. Okay, so now she's speaking on behalf of God. She really believes that God wants this to be America's finest hour. She's got this on good authority, apparently. Uh-huh. The most blessed hour where shifts take place, where the glory of God is deposited, where revival breaks out, where there's more harvest than ever before. That's what I believe God wants to do. Put the devil in crisis. Let's let's. Oh yeah, let's put the devil in crisis. Yeah, just by getting rid of our sin. Quick, stop doing it. Let's put the devil right into crisis. How can we do that in America? By praying, praying, praying. By aligning our lives, aligning our lives, aligning our lives. By repenting of our sins and turning towards the goodness of God. Let's put the devil in America in crisis. We can do it, church, by following him, by obeying the Lord, by establishing his ways. Let's do it. Don't be shaken by the elements that are being shaken. Don't be shaken in your faith by the ups and downs of the economy. Don't be shaken by any of the negative reports that are being spoken. There's no power in what she's saying. I mean, this is a complete distraction. Be shaken by the word of the Lord that says align with him and stand on his promises that we can see the greatest outpouring of the spirit ever. It's a critical hour. It's very critical. Yeah, I agree it's a critical hour. That means we need to get back to doing what Christ has told us to do. The, the Proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name. That's you know a, a, an almost one-to-one cross-reference in Luke 24, what Jesus said in Luke 24, it's almost a one-to-one cross-reference to what we just read in, uh, in Chronicles uh, 7.14, right? And it's especially critical for the church that we live as true believers. Do you know that Jesus said in the book of Matthew, he said, many, many will come to me in that day, not just a few, many will come to me in that day and say, They will say, did we not prophesy in your name? Did I not prophesy in your name? Uh Did we not work many miracles? Did we not do this? Did we not do that? Did did we not, you know, have dental um, miracles? Did we not have weight loss miracles? Did we not have gold dust and oil uh, pouring forth? Did we not ascend to heaven and and, uh, drink from the wine cellar of God? You know, things like that. Just a few miracles. They said, did we not work many miracles in your name? And he said that, I'm going to say back to them, I never knew you. And then he defines why. He says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. One of the greatest crises that we see in this hour is the body not walking in the ways of God. Yeah, it's because of false teachers like you, Patricia. If the body will walk in the ways of God and come into alignment, then what they need to do first is get rid of you. Then we will see the glory of God visit the nation, no matter how much natural crisis there is. But if the church goes wayward, then there's... Yeah, the church has already gone wayward, and you're like one of the major symptoms and signs that it has. No preservative for the nation. I adjure you. 
I adjure you by the name of the Lord. I make appeal to you by the heart of God to come into alignment with the purposes of God, with the ways of God, with the word of God. Right on. And if you do that, then you'll know that uh, folks like Patricia King need to be excommunicated and thrown out of the church. It's just weird. (laughs) We live in strange days. We've got heretics saying things like she says. Weird. Okay, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> You have reached the voice mailbox for Melissa Fisher. Please leave a message after the tone. When finished, you may press one for more options. Hi, Melissa. It's the Holy Spirit. Um, I was wondering if you could help me out. I'm, I'm trying to uh, get a hold of a guy named Vincent. But I can't remember his last name. This guy wants me to make myself real in his life, but I can't find his address or his phone number or email. The world is so complicated. You know how hard it is to find somebody if you can't remember their last name? Do you know how many Vincents there are in the world? He's, he said that he would leave his sin behind if I could just, you know, somehow reach out to him and prove that I'm real. So if you can make one of your really fancy videos and tell him that I'm calling him by name, but don't tell him that I can't remember his last name, I, I really would appreciate it. Oh, and uh, one more thing. You might want to mention something about his adventurous heart. That way he'll know that the message is for him. Thanks, Melissa. I, you know, I don't know what I'd do without you. Hey everyone, this word is for Vincent. Vincent, the Lord calls you by your name and he is making himself known to you today. Now that he has made himself known to you, remember what you said. You said, Lord, if you would call me, if you would make yourself real, that I would come and I would leave, absolutely leave all 
all of it behind and come to you because you've been wavering between two opinions. Now here it is. Vincent, the Lord is calling you. Come to him. The life is better on this side. Believe me. Give up the unfruitful works of darkness and walk completely in the light. And I tell you, Vincent, you won't be sorry. The Lord is ready to show you a mighty, mighty adventure. That adventurous heart that you have, the Lord is going to really, really reach in and he's going to satisfy that heart in you and it's going to be even more than you ever could have planned on your best day. So Vincent, come to the Lord. Wait no longer. Vacillate between two opinions no longer. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, we're off topic. Get back to preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins. It's not enough to preach repentance. You've got to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. You can partner with us. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you're going to see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. The join our crew button, that's all about signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us because what that allows us to do is budget month to month our expenses. Um, you know, we, we need a particular amount every month and it goes up a little bit every month just because our audience continues to grow. But anyway, so, uh, if you're not already a, a subscriber to, you know, to, to our crew, join our crew. Um, Please do so. I'll be announcing our Christmas giveaway for our crew members, our way of saying thank you to y'all who are supporting us. Um, very shortly, by the way. And, uh, of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, the way you do that is by clicking on the Donate button, and then you can specify the amount, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Here we go. Let's move along here. Okay, from the uh, Pyromaniacs blog, headline reads, T.D. Jakes and like, part one, isn't unclear leader and oxymoron. This is a blog post written by Dan Phillips. 
He's part of the three musketeers there uh, who write for the Pyromaniacs blog. And uh, this is uh, regarding the T.D. Jakes uh, elephant in the room thing. But uh, Dan Phillips writes, he says, Hard as it may be to believe, there are two issues relating to the elephant room slash T.D. Jakes kerfuffle. You know, you don't ever see that word. I don't see the word kerfuffle very often. I'm going to have to see if I can weave that into some of more of my writing here. I'd like to talk about this particular kerfuffle. Anyway, uh, so it's hard to believe there are two issues relating to the elephant room, T.D. Jake's kerfuffle, which A, I think are crucial, yet B, haven't gotten the attention that we need to pay them. I'm going to use this platform to feature each, hoping to force them into the spotlight. Today focuses on just one of those issues. Jakes's history in modalism and other false teaching is well-known, well-documented, and long-term. And there's a link to each and every one of those words. Anyway, he didn't recently dabble in it, toy with it, get some learned and gracious rebuke, and request some time removed from teaching to consider it. Jakes has been spoken of and spoken to. He's achieved a big, visible platform, which he's used and used. Jakes has never denounced, disowned, nor distanced. In fact, he specifically refuses to do so. So now comes enabler, James McDonald, who... On the most charitable yet truthful read, I can imagine, has been trying on various techniques for damage control, like a sister in a shoe store. Uh, McDonald first says Jake's is going to be a guest on his show, which features great Christian leaders. All heaven breaks loose. <clears throat> well, it was the other thing. Uh, McDonald, who has ne- who has styled reformed critics as Nazis, eventually changes the ER purpose statement and says he's eating humble pie. Now, by the way, I didn't cover this, but um, I would like to uh, mention this so that you know, uh, so that you understand what it is that uh, is being referred to here. And uh, that is, is that a while ago, James McDonald on Twitter, on Twitter, um, did um, actually... Well, refer to his reformed critics as Nazis. Let me pull this up here. I happen to have the uh, Twitter status um, available. And here's what he said. He said this on August 18th. And so, and if you want to find the link to this, it's at the Pyromaniacs blog. On August 18th, James McDonald said this on Twitter. Why are so many reformed folks like Nazis? filled with insecurity and harshness over every perceived threat of less than total conformity. Um, I, I can only surmise that he doesn't even begin to understand what it is that Nazism was or what fascism was and is. It's just strange, absolutely strange. Anyway, so uh, say so all ho- all heaven breaks loose. McDonald, who has styled reformed critics as Nazis, eventually changes the ER purpose statement and says he's eating humble pie. Mm, say la. Now McDonald's back. 
thumping his chest and bellowing defiance at critics, calling Jakes a brother, later trimming the whiskers of the term brother, and being a bit coy. How coy? Well, first, McDonald complains about the inability of some to reserve judgment till the event. Reserve judgment? About what, one wonders? About the shifting mission of the elephant room? About Jakes's position? Well, as to the former, it's hard to blame anyone for finding the situation unclear. About the latter, as we noted, Jakes's position has been well known. Or is it? McDonald seems to want to imply that it isn't. Is McDonald unaware of all the work and effort that's put that's been put into that particular project? It's hard to imagine how to excuse such ignorance given the outpour since McDonald's initial announcement. Or is it that McDonald thinks that everyone except for McDonald is wrong about Jake's position? Well, that would seem to be the case. First, against all known evidence inciting nothing fresh, McDonald says Jake's is not, which would have to mean is no longer, a modalist. McDonald further says, quote, I'm looking forward to hearing him explain his position currently and how he may have changed from things that he has said historically. So he hints that Jake's position, A, may have changed and B, is in need of explanation. What's more, though, McDonald also now says, clearly I believe Bishop's Bishop Jakes is Trinitarian and will affirm such in the elephant room, too. He actually said that in the comments of the post that's been pulled. Anyway, it looks odd, laid against uh, may have been, doesn't it? So now that is a statement meriting a lot of parsing on many levels, not least of them the fact that McDonald apparently thinks that the hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, who knows, of Jakes's supporters who know such th- who know such a thing can safely and reasonably be left in the dark and conceivably die safely without that knowledge, worshiping what McDonald himself has agreed is a false Sabalian god until McDonald's paid event brings enlightenment to those who can afford it. But this whole post is about focusing on one issue, one question. So here it is. It's worth shouting. If the world, except for James McDonald, is unaware of T.D. Jakes's real position on a doctrine as central and foundational as the Trinity, then in what sense is Jakes any kind of a leader, let alone a Christian leader? This is a fantastic question that, that he's asking here. It feels surreal to have to explain this, but here we are, aren't we? So let's do this. What is a pastor's chief job? According to Hello, God. <laughs> That's what he, how he wrote it, too, by the way. It's according to Hello, God. Okay, so what is a pastor's chief uh, job according to God? It is to labor in the word and doctrine. See 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. It is to preach the word. See 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 2. It is to preach the word and the truth so clearly as to expose and refute error. See Titus chapter 1, verse 9. These are matters of communication in which it is the very heart and definition of the role of the pastor to A, communicate, B, truth, C, 
clearly, D, convincingly. Obviously, the more important the topic, the more critical these essentials. Well, then, is the nature of God important? Again, even having to pose the question makes me feel we're in bizarro world, but that's hardly breaking news, is it? Of course, the nature of God is important. Living as we are thousands of years after the close of the canon and many hundreds of years after Nicaea and Chalcedon, is the biblical doctrine of the Trinity essential to understanding the nature of God? Indeed, one of James MacDonald's mouths says that the doctrine of the Trinity is clearly a major national border issue, and I agree with that mouth. <clears throat> so, to say it again patiently, if it is true, stretching charity well beyond the snapping point, that Jake's has repented of his modalism and now embraces a robust biblical doctrine of the Trinity, and yet nobody of the thousands who have heard and read him, with the sole exception of James MacDonald, knows that fact, aren't the very nicest conclusions we can draw about Jake's these two, that he is, one, an extremely poor communicator, and two, an extremely poor judge of what is important. And if either of those things is true, then please, someone tell me, how is Jake's any kind of any leader, let alone a Christian leader, let alone a Christian leader who should be lifted up for analysis and emulation on an international platform? See, I think that that is a simple, discreet, fundamental, basic, vital, crucial question that doesn't involve the reading of minds, hearts, or tea leaves. It should be absolutely basic. Yet I don't see that simple question asked much. Really think about it. Can you imagine Todd Friel saying, we're going to have Phil Johnson on and get to the heart of what he really believes about the sovereignty of God in salvation? Or Janet Milford running the plug Tomorrow on the show, Frank Turk clarifies whether or not he really sees local church involvement as important in the Christian life. Or on Pirate Christian Radio, Friday on the show, Dan Phillips reveals whether or not he thinks it matters to root the gospel in the entire Bible. You'd all laugh, right? It'd be a joke. Whatever our other many failings, I think we've probably gone on record about those vital truths, right? And you can multiply it out to Ligon Duncan, John MacArthur, John Piper, or any other person who is justly viewed as a leader in any sense. Yet somehow, pay money to find out whether or not renowned Christian leader T.D. Jakes believes in the Trinity makes sense to say nothing else on any level. Yeah, I don't think so. And I'm being pretty clear on that, right? <clears throat> now, that's part one of Dan Phillips's stuff. We'll get to part two probably tomorrow, but great point. I mean, here's the deal. Um, since T.D. Jakes is a public leader in the Christian church who's being held up, you know, in the, I mean... He's uh, spoken twice at Willow Creek's uh, leadership conference, being held up as a Christian leader, right? 
I mean, he is my national brother. Uh, that's I'm using uh, James McDonald's argument from last week. Uh, he's you know he's he's my brother in the national sense. But uh, you know he, he in the church. I mean, he's a Christian leader. How come it's it's clear as mud what the man believes regarding the nature of God? Yeah, uh, public leaders don't get to have private teachings or private doctrines if they're in the Christian church. If they don't publicly believe, teach, and confess the historic Christian faith, they're not a Christian leader. And we shouldn't have to wait until the end of January of next year on a you know basically paid event to hear what T.D. Jakes believes regarding the Trinity. Weird. Absolutely weird. Okay, moving along. I'm not going to get to this whole thing, but uh, I, I want to point this out to you. Uh, today at the Ed Stetzer blog, at uh, you can find this at edstetzer.com, edstetzer.com, um, the Lifeway Research blog. The headline reads, Leadership Book Interview Bruce Ashford on Theology and Practice of Mission. And um, this... The, the I read this and I thought it was backwards, upside down, inside out. And I mean, it's just uh, embarrassingly um, not focused on the biblical uh, topic. Um, let me read this. Um, Bruce Ashford, Ashford is the dean of the college at, I'm assuming this is Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Over the years, he has been a pastor, evangelist, and church planter overseas. He also serves in leadership at the Summit Church. Bruce has recently edited a book titled Theology and Practice of Mission, God, the Church, and the Nations. In light of recent discussions about the mission of the church, I thought I'd include this book interview to give some different views on mission. Here is our interview. What is your book about? Well, this book is about mission. It's about the church's call to live as a witness to Christ, drawing the nations to worship. The mission as we see it does not begin in Matthew 28 or in the book of Acts, but rather all the way at the beginning of the biblical narrative. It was God's plan from beginning to make himself known throughout the whole earth and to have people everywhere living in his presence and under his goodness. The message of this book is that God created for this purpose and redeemed for this purpose, and God's people are called to live mission-shaped lives in light of his purposes for the world. Um, I've got a problem already. What does any of that mean? Um, living a mission-shaped life in light of his purposes for the world. Uh, this... <clears throat> Hang on a second here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, see, one one of the things I'm really good at is detecting um, different spices, theological spices. And this, yeah, that's weird. It's this, this really sounds, yeah, and smells a lot like um, some of the social gospel stuff I've been reading over the decades from the liberal camp. Yeah, see, and notice what happened here. Okay, he says, we're talking about the mission of the church, right? This mission, as we see it, does not begin in Matthew 28 or in the book of Acts, but rather the way, all the way back at the beginning of the biblical narrative. Hmm. Weird. Um, why is this weird? Because one of the primary rules of, uh, of uh, theology 
is that when you are dealing with a doctrine, you have to deal with the text that deal with the doctrine. Um, it, it, the I, what is I think it, the Latin is the Cides Doctrina. I, I, doing this from memory and my Latin is really bad. But the, the idea is this, is that the liberals, it's the liberals of the past who used to argue, oh, listen, stop with the systematic theology stuff and pointing me to particular doctrines as they're laid out in Scripture systematically. We need to just look at the whole of the Bible. Hmm. That's the method that was employed by such arch liberals as uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher. Uh, this is not, this. you know, yeah, so here's the deal. If you're going to talk about the mission of the church, you need to go specifically to passages where the mission of the church is clearly laid out in unambiguous terms. But see, what he's doing is rather than preferring the clear passage like Matthew 28 or Luke 24 or taking a, a hard look at the book of Acts, no, what we're going to do is we're going to interpret the mission of the church in light of all of the Bible. And by doing that, we're blurring all the definitions and all the clear passages are being shunted and blurred, uh, you know, kind of you know, almost like spy car style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was the name of that? game anyway there was when i was growing up there was a video game where you know you had you were the spy guy and and they they had that uh that was it terry gunn's theme song dun 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 yeah anyway sorry yeah song going in my head but so the the what happened is you you know you were driving a spy car and and there was the bad guys who were behind you trying to take you out and so you would you would deploy particular spy techniques and and you can press a button and out would come an oil slick and and then the bad guys would spin out of control and run off the road and die and or you can employ a smoke screen now you didn't have an unlimited amount of smoke screens but it was an important thing so this reminds me of the spy car technique known as the smoke screen okay and already we've got a problem we've got a huge 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 problem because you know, in my reading of the church fathers when they talk about the mission of the church they don't go to the whole bible and somehow begin with a conversation about the the overall their overall interpretation of the missio dei and then from that deduce down to what it is that uh, they think the mission of the church is <clears throat> they go to the passage you've heard of the great commission where the church is commissioned. Remember in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus says to Peter, on this rock I will build my church. And then the church is commissioned in Matthew 28. The church is commissioned to make disciples, baptizing and teaching. That's what the church is commissioned to do. So if you're going to talk about the mission of the church, you have to go to the clear passages. But here, everything's backwards. We're going to, we're just going to come up with our own interpretation of the entire narrative of, of the Bible and say that that's what's going to inform our stuff here. And then what happens is, is at this point, things are getting a little screwy. And then not only that, they're getting very man-centered. Watch this. So <clears throat> um, <clears throat> uh, Mr. Ashford continues, says, part one, God's mission 
argues that any discussion of the church's mission must start with a discussion of God's mission to glorify himself by redeeming his image bearers and restoring his good creation. Our first chapter tells the story of mission by unfolding the biblical narrative in four plot movements, the creation, fall, redemption, restoration. The second chapter, the triune God, investigates what it means to say that God is the agent of missions, arguing that God's nature is both the foundation and the pattern for the church's mission to the nation. Part two, the church's mission treats the church's mission in light of God's mission. The church's mission is to glorify him. Now listen to the sentence. The church's mission is to glorify him by participating in the redemption of his image bearers and by living as a sign of his kingdom and of the restoration of all things. While we... Don't say that the church is called to do everything that God does in the world. We do say the church's mission is framed by God's mission, seen against the backdrop, and understood in light of God's mission. Does any of that make any sense to you? Yeah, anyway. Yeah, I just the smoke screen went out, and this is just a very disturbing sentence. The church's mission is to glorify him by participating in the redemption of his image bearers. By participating in the redemption of his image bearers. By participating in the redemption of his image bearers. Weird. Um, Y'all familiar with the Roman Catholic doctrine uh, where Mary is co-redemptrix with Jesus, right? Yeah, you y'all you, familiar with that heresy, right? Um, there, there are some, not all, but there are some Catholics who believe, and it's a pretty prominent teaching in some quarters of the Roman Catholic Church, that Mary was she participated in the redemption of humanity by by virtue of the fact that she suffered so greatly while watching Jesus, her son, being crucified on the cross. And so the idea is, is that she is co-redemptrix with Jesus. That's a flat-out heresy. Our redemption was won solely by Jesus Christ alone. He, not you and me, not he, not him and her, was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. So now we got this language. The church's mission is to glorify him, that's God, by participating in the redemption of his image bearers. I wasn't there when when Jesus was crucified. Jesus doesn't have any co-redeemers. We've got this, this is all way backwards and wrong. And it doesn't make any sense. The church's mission is simple. It's simple. If you don't know what it is, let me remind you. And it doesn't have anything to do with you participating in the redemption of God's image bearers or me participating in the redemption of it. We can't. That work's been done. The Great Commission says this. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Pretty straightforward. Nothing in there about God's grander mission or anything of the sort. This is what the church is commissioned to do. Go, make disciples, baptizing, and teaching. That's it. That's what the church is commissioned to do. That's the mission of the church. All this other stuff, um, I, you know, it's, I'm sorry, it's way too close, way too close to the liberal stuff we were getting from Schleiermacher back in, was it the 18th century, 18th, 19th? I forget what year Schleiermacher was out. But he, he was doing the same stuff, arguing that we, oh, no, we don't look, go to those specific passages. No, you need to look at all of the scripture so that we can get the big, you know, and then and what ends up happening is that nothing has any precision and that there's there's no theological doctrinal precision whatsoever. Co-passage, by the way, to this is um, uh, Luke chapter 24, uh, starting at verse 46. Jesus said to them, It is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. It doesn't say that they're co-redeemers, of the image bears, it says that the disciples are witnesses of these things. Okay? Yeah, when you start talking about us, the church, being co-redeemers with Christ, then you're you are becoming the gospel. But you and I are not the gospel. The gospel is the proclamation of Christ crucified for our sins under Pontius Pilate and resurrected on the third day for our justification. He's the one who did the redeeming, not you, not me. We don't we don't be we we ain't co-redeemers with Jesus. No way, no how. And when you start talking like that, then you turn yourself, your life, your ideas, your whatever into the gospel and it's not. Let me give you one more cross-reference, and then we'll get out of here and come back and do our uh, sermon review. But uh, this is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll start at verse 16 so that we get the context. Here's what it says. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation— The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ, not you and I, but who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, listen to this, the ministry of reconciliation. So we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. And so that you don't mistake what that is, listen to this. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Aha! So we've been entrusted with the message of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation is not that you and I are are, are partners, partner redeemers with Jesus as he's, we partner with him to redeem those image bearers. That's ridiculous stuff. No. We've been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation, which means we've been entrusted with the message of reconciliation that God, that that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Not you and me doing it, but God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses 
against them. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So here's my problem is is that uh, when it comes to these missiologists and their their recent writings regarding the so-called mission of the church, uh, they keep employing the uh, the Terry Gunn uh, dun, 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 spy cars, you know, uh, you know, smokescreen thing so that at the end of it, I'm not even sure what they're talking about. But I, I, I can understand Matthew 28. I get Luke 24. I understand 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's Bruce Ashford and Ed Stetzer that I don't understand, especially when you start saying things like <clears throat> the, the church's mission is to glorify him by participating in the redemption of his image bearers. Yeah, that sounds eerily similar to the co-redemptrix stuff. And here's the deal. You go out and they're sitting there going, well, what, what, what are you saying he believes regarding that? Here's the point. If you're going to start communicating to me Christian doctrine and Christian theology, and you're going to pu- uh, publish a Christian book, if I can't understand your theology and the language that you're employing, then the problem is the author, not the reader. The problem's the author because he's not making himself clear. What is the cash value of the sentence? The church's mission is to glorify him by participating in the redemption of his image bearers and living as a sign of his kingdom. What seems to be missing here is the clear proclamation of what Christ has done and somehow me becoming the gospel. And if I've misunderstood him, it's not because I'm trying to twist his words. It's because he's not communicating clearly. And the problem occurs in the beginning. Rather than trying to understand the mission of the church by looking at the clear passages where the church is commissioned to do its work, we're instead going to redefine the church's mission in light of the broader meta-narrative of, of at least their, their view of the meta-narrative that they've concocted themselves. That's not how you decide what the church's mission is. You want to know what the church's mission is? You look at the passages where the church is commissioned to do its work, and you look at what the church's commission tells it to do. It doesn't get any more complicated than that, and when you start overcomplicating it, the church loses its mission, loses its focus, loses its message, and becomes completely ineffective. And that's how I really feel about it and think about it. All right, we're up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Hey, follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sermon review from an anonymous pastor. I can't, I, I, for the life of me, I can't find his name. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. 
Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap write down the promo code and then click on the banner and then book your travel today again that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap all right we're back hour number two of fighting for the faith sermon review time Now, I have a guess as to who this uh, man is that's preaching, but I can't confirm it, so I have to officially say it's anonymous. All right, let's cue up the music here. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via the Connection Church in Kyle, Texas. Anonymous presiding, apparently. Now, if I had to guess, the uh, the man preaching is uh, the children's minister, Trey Williams. But I can't tell. The video's fuzzy, and they don't put his name on it. So, officially, this is being preached by Anonymous. The name of the sermon, Courageous Lead the Way. Courageous Lead the Way. There's so many things wrong with this sermon. Um, uh, well, maybe it's just best if I let Anonymous preach it for you. As you're listening to it, make sure to pay attention to how Scripture is used. See if there's a proper distinction of law and gospel. And uh, see if uh, a crucified and risen Savior is needed for any of this. That's all I've got to say. So without any further ado, here's Anonymous, who I think is Trey Williams, from the Connection Church in Kyle, Texas. The name of the sermon, Courageous, Lead the Way. Kill this music. Here we go. What it looks like with hair. All right. 
Okay, one more thing before we get started. Those of you who know me know I'm a t-shirt and shorts and tennis shoes guy, so go ahead and admire the shoes now so that you can get them off your mind. Don't clap, that's embarrassing, but I don't want you staring at my shoes while I talk, and all I've heard this morning is, oh, dude, love the shoes. So, all right, we're done with that. Um, Let's talk about courageous leadership. I'm going to talk a little bit about my dad, who is here today. Um, Many of you know Mr. Joe, but my dad growing up was about the toughest guy that I knew. My dad is a former Marine, Vietnam veteran. Um, He was in the jungles and um, saw some things that I couldn't even have nightmares about. And growing up, um, I'm sure that guys, you will identify with this, that every now and then I needed to see if I was ready to take down the old man, you know? (laughs) And he let me know in about two seconds flat that uh, he was still the man. So yeah, my dad is a tough guy. When we were, when I was about nine, we moved to Del Rio, Texas, and there's a lake in Del Rio called Lake Amistad, and um, the way it was formed is the, 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 the land over there is very canyony, so basically they dammed up the Rio Grande and filled up these canyons, and what happens is that you might be walking in hip-deep water, and the next step, you're in 12 feet of water. And one Sunday afternoon, I don't even know if, uh, if, um, if Dad even remembers this story, but uh, we're out at the swimming area. And there were lots of people, a couple hundred people there, and we're getting ready to get in the water. And we hear this woman screaming. And I don't remember what she said. I just remember the word drowning. And she was pointing out in the water, and everybody around... Pause there for a second. We we got a problem. What are we beginning with? Now, remember, the jo- what is the job of the pastor? <laughs> you know, uh, Dan Phillips asked that question earlier today. And uh, one of the passages that he pointed us to is in uh, one of the pastoral epistles, the uh, the uh, epistle to Timothy, 2 Timothy. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Let me read, starting at verse 1, Paul's charge to young Pastor Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching or doctrine the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths now here's the deal is does this qualify as preaching the word we might do a verse count at the end of this thing but you see if it qualifies in in you know by any stretch of the imagination under the definition of preaching the word. Right now, we're starting with a life story, his life story. But see, that's the thing. A lot of pastors nowadays preach themselves, and that's the problem. Around us was just sort of frozen. But Dad looked at where she was pointing, and he was in the water. And I was 9 or 10. It seemed like the guy was a couple hundred feet out, but he probably, you know, he may have been 40 or 50 feet. I, I don't know. It looked a long way away. Um, but he was in trouble. And Dad went out there. And got him and pulled him back to shore. And by the time they got back to shore, this guy was unconscious. He wasn't breathing. And so dad gave him mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and, um, and saved the guy's life. He started coughing up water, and, and he was fine. And um, what I remember is watching this going on and thinking, this is like, just like it happens on TV. I mean, I'm, I'm watching a rescue as if I was watching TV. And what it did inside of me is it awakened something inside of me that made me want to do something heroic. Um, 
I've spent the last 25 years waiting for that moment to happen. Um, but I'm really glad that I got to see my dad do something heroic because it had a huge impact on my life. Now, I do want to tell you a story about my life, too. And well, you're already doing that. Um, so, and so notice the subjective, well, evidence that this is an important thing because it awakened something inside of him. Okay. Um, how do we know that the thing that wasn't awakened wasn't a demon? Um, how do you know it was a good thing that was awakened? Well, I mean, maybe should we put it back to sleep? I mean, what is this? What does this have to do with anything whatsoever to do with Christianity, with biblical teaching? Where in the Bible um, is the category? Where are all of the important passages for courageous leadership? Is it a command to be a courageous leader? Are you sinning if you're not a courageous leader? Uh, that, which leads to then the obvious question, if well, if everyone's a leader, um, then who's going to be a follower? Um, can, can you be a courageous follower of a courageous leader? And where is any of this taught in the Bible again? Because at this point, we started with a story about your dad's life, and now we're going to tell a story about your life. But something subjectively has awoken within you, and now you want to you want to rescue somebody too. Well, that's all fine and dandy, but um, you're wasting sermon time talking about yourself when your job as a pastor is to preach the word not your life you're not supposed to preach yourself you got to preach the word which requires you to preach about christ not you we continue a time when um i had a chance to act with courage it was about probably about five years ago those of you who don't know me well um don't know that in my previous life I was in the restaurant business and I owned a couple of, of delis in Austin called Kevin's Cookies and Deli and oh man it's you know it's cool to own your own business and it's really awesome when people are depending on you and it's really awesome when what you do is is something excellent and we were all of those things and because we were all of those things I felt pretty good about myself um, the thing is that I'd have to wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning to get to work and I'd spend 14 or 15 hours at work. And by the time I got home, I was done. I was exhausted. And so I'd take my kids upstairs to bed and I'd read them bedtime stories. And it was all I could do to stay awake. In fact, I, most of the time I didn't. I can remember countless times my older son, Nicholas, who was about four at the time, elbowing me. Dad, wake up. Dad, finish the story. And the more times this happened, the more aggravated he would get. And I'd trudge back downstairs and Jen would be there and she'd be ready to talk, ready to talk about her day. And I just didn't have it. I didn't have any gas left in the tank and I'd go to bed. And so this huge elephant in the room was never talked about except for about every six months when we'd have a blow up and she couldn't stand it anymore. And she'd say, come on, you're giving your best to this business and you're giving us the crumbs, and there's nothing left for us. And I'd get mad, and I'd be like, hey, I got people depending on me. I'm trying to prepare for our future. I'm doing this for us. Lie. I knew in my heart that giving, my crumb, giving the crumbs of my time to my family wasn't the right thing to do, but I wasn't big enough to admit it. And so we went like this for quite some time. 
because I didn't have the courage to change something. And it almost cost me my family. And that's the kind of courage that we're going to talk about today. Um, we're going to talk about some, uh, some leadership principles that will help us lead our families and dads especially. So, we're going to talk about some leadership principles that are going to help us lead our families. Now, I'm sure this is practical information that we're about to hear. I'm, I'm sure it's well-intentioned. But this isn't the job of a pastor. The job of a pastor is to preach the word not give people leadership principles and tips. I want you to hear this today. This is not easy stuff to listen to. It's not easy stuff to implement, but it is vital if we're going to impact the next generation and it starts in our families. Now I'm going to give you guys some statistics that you may not know the exact answers to, but they're not going to surprise you. Statistic number one is this. One third of the kids in our country don't live with their biological dad. And 20 million of those kids don't live with any father figure at all. And nearly 40 million, or ne nearly 40% of the kids born in our country this year will be born to single mothers. But there's another thing going on in our country right now that I don't know how we quantify it with statistics, but this is it. Out of all the dads who are at home with their kids, there is a scary number of them who are not engaged with their families, who are not relationally invested in their kids and in their marriages. And you, so know, you don't have a specific number. It's just a scary number. Okay. You know what? There's probably some in this room today. I used to be one of them. Our country is full of them. And here's what happens, guys. Here's what happens. We've got a, pri we got a prison system that is full of young men whose dads were never around. Statistics tell us that kids who grow up without a dad more likely to drop out, more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol, more likely to become sexually active, more likely to commit crimes, more likely to suffer from depression, more likely to commit suicide. Now, all of these things are obviously terrible outcomes. But what, what's the root of all of that? Answer, our sin and rebellion against God. And the Bible doesn't have as a solution just tips and leadership principles, you know, to, you know, to cover up the boo-boo. Um, it, the solution cost the Son of God his very life. Uh-huh. Yeah, so, all right, so here, here's some leadership tips that will help you avoid your kids from being depressed and things like that. I don't think that that is a legacy that any of us would wish on our kids, and yet, because we don't have the courage to act and lead, that's exactly what we're doing. I want you to check out this clip from the movie Courageous, um, and two of the guys in the movie are, are talking about... You're going to play a clip from the movie Courageous. Why aren't you opening the Bible? ...about this very thing. Hey, Nathan, can I ask you something? Yeah, what's up? Do you really feel like it messed up your childhood not having a dad? More than you know. I struggled with who I was. 
trying to prove myself. Almost got in the game. You know, if fathers just did what they're supposed to do, half of the junk that we face on the streets wouldn't exist. If fathers would do, just do what they're supposed to do, then half the stuff, half the junk we face on the streets wouldn't exist. exist. Well, that's great and all. I'm, I'm sure that it'll make the world a better place if we can just convince fathers to do half of the things they're supposed to do. But the job of the church is to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. See, there's a reason why all this bad stuff is happening, and that has to do with our sinful natures. And and just applying principles and leadership tips uh, to our sinful nature isn't going to really help. I mean, it's like basically applying a band-aid to somebody who's mortally wounded and has internal bleeding of the of their organs going on. Yeah, a band-aid just ain't going to help in that situation. And worse, um even if somebody applied these tips um and maybe had some improvement in their life at, at, in in their family, um they could still go to hell. Yeah, so you better deal with the real root problem, and that's our sinful nature. And you better deal with it the way Scripture does by telling people to repent and be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ on the cross. I can't talk today. Okay. Guys, this is not an economic issue. It's not a race issue. It's not a cultural issue. It's a leadership issue. And what we're doing... Uh, No, it's a sinful nature issue right now generationally what we're doing dads is we are not leading i've got a fifth a fifth grader named nicholas and i talk to him a lot about leadership in fact i walk him to school every- and now we're steering back into your life great every day and the last thing that i tell him every day before he goes in that building is i say i want you to lead well today in fact this is something that we've been telling all of our fifth graders over here in Connection Kids this year. When they came up, we sat down with them and we told them, look, you guys are the big kids in the room now. Everybody's looking up to you. You need to lead well. And here's what it means to lead well. You set the example. Other kids are looking to you. You take those younger kids aside and you help them. If they don't know how to read yet because they're in kindergarten, you read along with them. Lead well has become our slogan in Connection Kids for the fifth graders. And dads, parents, we need to lead well. If there is an absence of leadership, somebody's going to jump up and fill that void. And the thing is, most of us, most people are not leaders, they're followers. So if we're not going to lead our kids, then we're taking chances that somebody's going to jump in and that somebody isn't going to be a leader, they're going to be a loudmouth. And I tell Nicholas all the time, I don't want you following the loudest voice. I want you to follow the, the right voice. I want you to be the right voice. And if we're not that voice in our kids' lives, we're giving up an opportunity to be the biggest influence in their lives. And the clock is ticking, guys. The older they get, the less influence we have on them. And so if we're going to lead them well, then we need to make sure that Ours is the voice that's speaking in their lives and not someone else. Now, we're going to talk today about some principles that we can apply to help us lead well. And the first principle I want to talk about is very simple. Love. Love your family. The Bible gives us the best example of love that we could possibly follow. And it comes right from 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. This is how we know what love is. 
Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Now, I'll go a step further with that. Uh, Notice at this point, so we've got a mention here of um, the cross. But it, it, it's, well, Jesus laid down his life. Now you better do the same. Get cracking. Uh, with really no explanation as to why would Jesus lay down his life? Why would he need to do that? Was he just trying to set an example for us to follow? Or was it deeper than that? Can you give us some details? And tell you that we ought to lay down our lives for our kids. Love is not a feeling. Love is a verb. Love is action. And if you're going to love your kids, then you need to spend time with them. You need to talk to them. You need to lay down your lives for them. And I'm not talking about you need to jump in front of a bus for your kids, okay? I know many of you would, and, you know, if you had to, I'm sure you would. But laying down your lives for your kids means laying down the remote control. It means laying down the book, laying down the newspaper. It means I don't care how tired you are today, you invest in your family, When we become parents, we're giving up some of our rights. We're giving up a lot of our rights. And we've got to be willing to do it. And it's easy for me to stand up and say it. It's hard for us to do it. And I get that. But there's nothing to be done but just do it. Lay down your lives for your kids. Principle, uh, actually right along the lines of love your family, we talk about loving our kids. Listen. Your kids need to know of your deep love for them. They've got to be assured of it. There is nothing wrong with hugging your kids. I don't care how embarrassed my 10-year-old is. I'm hugging him before I let him go in that school every day. He could just get over it. Hug your kids. Tell them you love them. You can't tell them enough that you love them. You can't tell them enough. They need to know. And Now, this is most certainly true. I mean, you need to tell your kids you love them. That's important stuff. Um, here's the deal. Um, keep in mind that just because something is true doesn't mean that it's what's supposed to be preached in in church. For example, okay, the last time I checked, the general theory of relativity equals mc squared is still considered to be a valid truth. That that you know that that equation e equals mc squared is still used by people as if it's true. That hasn't been overturned. As a result of it, e equals mc squared is true. That doesn't mean that the job of the pastor is to preach e equals mc squared. Even though if he were to do that, he would be preaching truth. Okay. Now, these are just simple things that we could talk about here. I mean, so geometry, it's, yeah, it's geometry lessons from the pulpit, even though geometry is considered true, is not something you want to preach. Um, you know, giving the latest news about celebrities and stars and things like that, talking about latest Lady Gaga's latest uh, hit song, even though it may be at the top of the charts and pointing out the fact that it's at the top of the charts would technically be true um, doesn't mean that that's what's to be preached during church, okay? Same thing applies here. Yes, it's a great idea to hug your kids. Strongly recommend that you do it. I'm sure that there's a place to learn this stuff, but there's business that needs to be tended to at church, and that involves preaching the word. And that's not what's happening right now. We're getting tips and principles on how to be better leaders in our family, which I'm sure is practical information, 
but that's not the job that's been given to pastors by God himself in his word. We continue. Besides loving your kids, you need to love your spouse. You need to love your spouse. If you are married, you need to stay married. And Now, this is true. I think you should back this up from Scripture because there's passages that can help you out here. But the problem is, is that notice what's going on here. All of this is really law. You're being preached straight up law. And I know, and I'll get to the implications of that in a minute. Know that there are marriages in this room right now that are under strain, and there are probably marriages in this room right now that are in crisis. And I don't take that lightly, and I don't take what I'm telling you lightly. Listen, I've been there, okay? And we know that kids who grow up in a two parent household have a much, much better chance of growing up to have healthy, balanced lives. You do realize that even kids who grow up in healthy, balanced households with two parents who tell them they love them and hug them regularly, that those kids are actually still born dead in trespasses and sins. They are sinners in need of a savior. As a result of it, um, that's what needs to be preached, God's law and the gospel, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, even to people who have well-adjusted childhoods and come from two-parent families. Love your spouse. Now, this isn't always easy. And the, the trick, and it's no trick, it's work, is you've got to get out of the mindset of, well, they're not doing enough for me. She's not doing enough for me. He's not doing enough for me. And you've got to get into the mindset of what can I do to serve my spouse? Marriage isn't about 50-50. It's about I'll do whatever it takes to serve my spouse. And that means you've got to be willing to do more than 50-50. And if you're in crisis right now and your spouse isn't doing 50-50, then you better make up for it. Because only in serving somebody else, in serving your spouse, will you ever find that healing power in your marriage. And it's hard, and it takes time. And th that's a whole other sermon that we'll do a whole other day. But you need to know that raising healthy kids means you need to make it work. You need to make it work. Now, some of you are out there going, well, it's too late. So what are you saying? I'm just out of luck? No, no. And this is for you. You've got to respect your child's mother. Dads, respect your child's mother. Moms, respect your child's father. And if you don't live with them anymore, then it's that much more important. I know that there are reasons that you're not together anymore. And there are probably some really good reasons. And I don't take that lightly. But if you're speaking into your kid's life, your dad's a bum, your dad's a loser, he'll never amount to anything, then you're poisoning them. If you're speaking into your kids' minds, your mom is stupid. Your mom is irresponsible. She's no good. You're poisoning their minds. You have got to learn to set aside your relational challenges with the other parent of your child and come together for what's best for your child. I had uh, someone talk to me after the first service. He said, you know, um, I'm in that tough spot right now. And the thing is, um, she won't even let me see my daughter. And my daughter doesn't want to see me because of the things that she says to me. Um, you know, there's no easy answer for that. But you have to control what you can control. And the first thing is you start praying for the other parent of your child.
because that child is loved just in, intensely by you and by their other parents. And you need to pray for that other parent whether you live with them or not and teach your child to respect them. Now, the next principle we want to look at to lead our families is you need to educate your family. And I love Proverbs 22, verse 6. We all are, most of us are pretty familiar with it. It says, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not turn from it. But I want to go a step further. And I want to take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. Check it out. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. In other words, you cannot escape it. You should not be able to escape it. Educating our kids and teaching them who God is and teaching them that following Jesus is the way of life that you want. Yeah, okay, notice that the passage you're quoting talks about being so steeped in God's word that it's everywhere so it's so that you're teaching it. Um, you're just ripping little verses out of context here and there and weaving together this pep talk of a, of a leadership principle sermon. And um, the problem is, is that you're doing uh, the the thing that makes it impossible to actually fulfill the passage that you're talking about, and that you know, in order to fulfill the passage, you'd have to really be God's word needs to be in on your lips in your conversations. Uh, it needs to be everywhere, but it's like barely making an appearance in this sermon. Don't sit there and tell these parents they need to disciple their children. Um, you need to show by example what it looks like to actually teach people God's word, and that would require you to actually do that. But we're not hearing any passage in context. I mean, we're being taught God's word fortune cookie style. I mean, I mean, did you just mix these verses up and put them in a hat? And then yank them out and say, okay, here's a verse, there's a verse, and I'll just weave it together into a courageous leadership sermon. What I want for them is something that happens all the time. And so, you know, we're with your kids and Connection Kids for an hour every Sunday, and it, it's great time. And some awesome things happen over there. A lot of awesome things happen over there. Um, life change happens over there. But I'm not the spiritual leader of your children's lives. You are. And I can't do in one hour of a week. And our awesome Connection team, Connection Kids team cannot do in one hour every week what you can do in all of those other hours when those kids are with you. You know, Jesus had 12 disciples. They didn't meet every Sunday for an hour and a half. They met almost every waking hour for three years. We need to disciple our kids. When Jesus was resurrected and ascended to heaven, he had a team on the ground ready to spread the message of the greatest story in the history of the world because they had spent... Yeah, now, aren't you supposed to be on that team? Now, I know you're not one of the apostles, but, I mean, aren't pastors supposed to be, like, the historical extension of that team? You know, that they're supposed to be telling the, the greatest story ever told? Uh, isn't that your job, pastor? Why aren't we hearing any of the details of the greatest story ever told? Why aren't you telling it? Three years being discipled by him. One day your kids are going to leave the house. 
What story are they going to tell? Are you going to disciple them so that they can go out and further the story? Or are you going to sit back and just hope that it takes? I mean, basically, you, you want the parents to do the thing you're not doing, right? Because if you sit back and hope that it takes, it's probably not going to take. You've got to educate your family. You've got. Well, don't you think you ought to educate the parents then as to what the greatest story is? You know, give them some, preach the word, you know, things like that. To disciple your kids. The third principle I want to talk about today is to affirm your family. Affirm, okay. Affirm your family. And where do you see this in scripture? Now, the word affirmative means yes, right? Trey, are you going to preach today? Affirmative, you know? That is, okay, that's, he just said who he was. Ha ha, it is Trey. Got it. Okay, so it's not anonymous. It, this is Trey Williams. Got it. Okay. Are you going to have liver and onions for lunch? Negative. Okay, affirmative is positive, and you need to have positive affirmation of your kids. Now, what this means is your kids need to know that you love them, and they need to know you love them because they're your kids. Let's take a look at um, Matthew chapter 3. Um, what? Uh, oh boy, Matthew chapter 3 is the story of Jesus' baptism. This is, a, this is a parental affirmation teaching passage. What? Verses 16 and 17. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. No, you are not doing this to this passage, are you? Oh, please tell me you're not doing this to this passage. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Yep, he's doing it. The voice from heaven did not say, This is my Son who is way smarter than all you other jokers. It just said, This is my Son whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. Yeah, so the reason why that is in there isn't because... It points to Jesus being the Messiah or anything like that. No, the reason that passage is in there is so that you parents can pay attention and learn how to affirm your children the way God affirmed his son. You have got to be kidding me. Now, sometimes we get so caught up in, I want my kid to be the best. I want my kid to have straight A's. I want my kid to be state champion in sparring in Taekwondo. But... If all we're doing is pushing achievement with our kids, then the message that they're going to hear is, if I want mom and dad to love me, I better produce. We've got to affirm our kids. They need to know, I love you because of who you are. I love you because you belong to me, and I'm proud of you because of who you are. Dads, I want to take you back for a minute to the day that your first child was born. Right after they put the kid in your arms, and you're like, oh boy, what do I do now? The next moment you're out in the waiting room telling everybody, it's a boy, it's a girl, nine pounds, 11 ounces, everything's great. Remember that? You're telling everybody you can and you're strutting around the waiting room like you just won the Super Bowl and you didn't even do anything. Mama did all the work, right? <laughs> but you're so proud of this kid, this brand new kid, and the kid hasn't done anything yet, but you love your child because they're your child. We can't lose that just because our child is now 6 or 10 or 15. They're still our kids. We still love them, and they still need our affirmation. Affirm your kids.
you know, affirm them the way God the Father affirmed Jesus Christ because he was showing us an example of good parenting. Oh, man, I am just, uh, this is miserable, unbelievable. Now, the last thing that we're going to talk about is defend your family. And if I have not stepped on your toes yet, go. No, you haven't stepped on my toes and you haven't rightly handled God's word. This is just a miserable, miserable mishandling of God's word. This is awful. Go ahead and pick your feet up off the ground because I'm about to. Um, but before I do, let's take a look at this clip from the Courageous movie. So apparently we're getting a movie clip out of context, too. I edited that a little short, but what happens is he opens the door and his little baby girl is in the back seat of that truck. It's a very powerful moment in the film, and I don't think any parent in this room wouldn't do the same thing to defend the safety of your child, would you? But the kind of defense that I'm talking about right now is defending your kid's innocence. And this is a battleground that gets harder um. and harder to defend. Yeah, the, here here's the problem. Um, I, I'm the father of three children, and I'm not trying to talk smack about my children, uh, you know, or anything like that. But uh, I never had to teach any of them how to be bad. Yeah, my kids did not come to me innocent; they came to me as sinners. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, I understand what he's talking about here. Just because they come to you sinners doesn't mean that you just expose them to all of the uh you know full blown sin that's out there in the world. I get that, but um all the time. The biggest battleground that we've got to defend is the media monster. Are you willing to be courageous and stand up and tell your child you're not gonna watch that? You're not gonna listen to that. You're not gonna play that video game. There is we're inundated with it. And I promise you, if it's not happening in your house, it's happening in your kids' friends' houses. It's everywhere. And if we're not courageous enough to step in and say, nope, these are the limits in our... Yeah, are you courageous enough to stand up to the media monster?
Yeah, put your armor on, dads. You you got to be courageous and stand up to the media monster. Our house, this is what you're allowed to see. This is what you're allowed to listen to. Then our kids are going to be exposed to things they're not ready for. Now, I'm not a prude. I'm not saying we need to raise a generation of prudes. But what I am saying is that kids are too young to be exposed to a lot of the stuff that they see on TV and hear on the radio. I've got a 10-year-old, and I don't want to have to explain to him why Katy Perry just said there's a stranger in my bed and a pounding in my head. He doesn't need to hear it. He doesn't need to know about that yet. And it's my job to shelter him for it, from that. It's my job to defend his innocence because he doesn't know how to process that yet. That, that's great and all. Um, can, can, could you just like put the pep talk thing away because – as far as advice goes, this is pretty shallow and basic and um, obvious kind of stuff. Um, but what people can't get is Christ and him crucified for our sins. They, they get this kind of advice anywhere. But the message of the gospel, the greatest story ever told, you're supposed to be part of that team that's telling that story. Why aren't you doing that? The second battlefield that we've got to worry about is the battlefield up here we say friends but i'm going to expand that to you know just others in general it might be classmates it might be members of your own family but you probably know some people that your child hangs out with that are exposed to things that you really don't want them exposed to are you going to have the courage to say you can't go hang out at his house today it's hard but in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, let me find this because I don't want to flub it. Um, and here we go again. I completely, I mean, we're not really even getting, yeah, I mean, any understanding of the biblical text here at all. Just fortune cookie stuff taken, I mean, all the do nots and do this is, and, but without any telling of the real story, we have no idea how to piece any of this together. I mean, at the end of this, is anybody really grown in their understanding of God's word, like, at all? Check this out. Philippians says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. I would say God's word qualifies. Why don't you tell us about that so we can think about it all day? Like, give me a big heaping portion of God's word so that I can chew on that for the rest of the day. How's that? The battle for our kids' hearts, it starts with what they put in their minds. Yeah, I agree. So let's put God's word in there, like a lot of it. And if we are not courageous enough to say, mm-mm, you're too young for that, then it starts here and it goes to here. And once it's here, it becomes an action item. So we've got to defend their innocence and cut it off at the very beginning. And parents, this goes for us too. The battle for our hearts begins in our minds. All right. So um, we've got a couple of uh, a couple of action steps I want you to think about, uh, and then we'll, we'll close it up. But so you, you got some action steps, and then you're going to close. Okay. Great. Um, when do we actually get to hear God's word in context and hear what it says? When do you just tell the greatest story, you know, the one about Jesus? Here's what I want you to hear. 
Parenting courageously means that you're going to get your hands dirty. It means that you're going to have to get down on a face-to-face level with your kids and you're going to have to have some conflict with them. It's a contact sport, folks. You don't... You can't afford to be the nice guy or the nice girl. We had this conversation in my house this week. My fifth grader, he's been doing a lot of, uh, a lot of writing. So they're really working on writing skills. And every day he's got to read a little bit. And then he's got to write about what he read. And so he's a pretty good rule follower. He'll read the directions. And the directions say you need five sentences. And three of them need to be descriptive. And you need to write half a page. And that's what he'll do. And I'll read it. And I'll think, I have no idea what you just read because I see five sentences that are all over the place. So I've really been working with him about making his ideas flow together. And he does not like it because that always means go ahead and erase it because you're redoing it. And so the fights that we're having, you know, I'm telling him, look, I don't think you're lazy. You just have to learn how to do this. And sometimes when you're learning how to do it, it means you got to do it again. And so I don't want you... Nicholas, to feel like I'm punishing you here, but I'm trying to teach you. And, you know, he wasn't hearing it. He was upset and he was crying. And Ethan, my five-year-old, looked at me and he goes, Dadu, calls me Dadu. He says, Dadu, I thought you were the nicest dad in the world. (laughs) I said, nope, I am not the nicest dad in the world. I said, but I want to be a good dad. And that means that sometimes I'm going to make you do things that you don't want to do. And sometimes I'm not going to let you do things that you do want to do because it's not my job to be your buddy. It's my job to teach you how to make good decisions and to raise you up to be a godly man. And that's what I'm going to do. And I love it when you like, when you're happy with me and I love it when you think I'm nice, but my job isn't to be nice. My job is to raise you up to be godly men. And that's what I'm going to do. And parents, that's what we've got to do. That's what we've got to do. I want you to look at where you want your kids to be in 5, 10, 15 years. The decisions that we make today have to be with that goal in mind, not with how am I going to get through today. Now, we all have those days. I get that. But if you're not looking at where you want your kids to be, then the decisions that you make today are not going to get you there. You've got to make decisions that may make you uncomfortable now, but that are good for the long term of your kids. All right. So if you look in your connection, uh, on your connection card, there are a, a couple of ways that you can respond to today's message. The first one is that starting in October, we're going to have a Courageous Living men's, men's study that's uh, going to be led on Monday nights by Brian Geiger. If you're interested in that study and it, the material is based right out of the movie, then mark that on your connection card and we'll be in touch with you. Uh, what, what, what? You're going to have a, a study group with information based on the movie. Isn't the job of the church to have Bible studies? Oh, miserable. It's going to be a fantastic study. They, uh, the company that makes this movie comes out with some outstanding study materials so that you can take that and, and go to another level with it. And we're hoping that you'll be a part of that. Even if you don't have kids in your house right now, listen, men, Men, we need you at whatever life station you are. I need mentors in my life. You know, my dad is a mentor of mine. We need that. So if you think this doesn't apply to you because your kids are gone, well, you might be able to speak into the lives of some men in this church who really need to hear what you have to say. 
Uh, another way that you can respond is I want you to mark on your connection card, yes, I want to go see Courageous with a group. We're going to try to get a group together on October 1st, which is the second day the movie comes out, to go see it as a group. And if you don't go with the group or you can't, I highly encourage you to go see this movie. You're going to have lots of real man moments in the movie, I promise, and it, it really will um, impact you in a big way. And third of all is this. If what you hear today is getting you thinking about, hmm, you know, maybe we do need to do things differently, I want you to take that and I want you to write it down. And I want you to say that to your kids. I hope that after hearing this sermon review, they think, yeah, we've got to do things differently with our sermons. We need to actually open up the Bible and teach it. We do things differently in our house because that is something that... If you want to raise a different kind of kid than a lot of the kids you see, then you do need to do things differently in your house. We say that to our kids a lot. Why can't I? Because we do things differently in our family. I want to. Nope. We do things differently in our family. And I encourage you to be proactive and do things differently in your family because what's going on affects an entire generation and it starts in your house. So I want to close with one final verse, and this comes from... Don't you think the most important thing we could be teaching our children is about Jesus? You know, opening up the biblical text and telling them the greatest story ever told. And in order for them to tell the story, they've got to hear the story, which means that means the pastor's supposed to tell the story at church over and over and over and over again, because we all need to hear it. Yeah, just you know, I'm just thinking that uh, you know you're not gonna really have any long-term impact on your kids if you're gonna try to just give them tips and principles that they can apply and and stuff like that. I mean, if you really want your kids to be Christians, then that means they need to hear about the Christ from the book of Joshua, first chapter, verses seven and nine. Joshua is a great general and led the Israelites after the death of Moses. And at yeah. the very beginning of the book of Joshua... Yeah, he did. Why don't you tell the story? You know, why don't you take some time and you know, maybe work your way through the passages of the Exodus and, and the story of Moses, and then, you know, and, then, and then you can steer into the whole Joshua thing. I mean, don't you think you ought to tell the whole story so that people can understand what's going on with the whole Joshua thing? When he's taking over the land of Israel or the, the Israelites, God says to him, Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And dads, this is what he is saying to us today. Be strong and courageous. Be willing to do things differently. Don't turn to the left or the right. Be strong and courageous. And let him fulfill that promise that he will direct our paths. And he will help us. And he will go with us wherever we go. Would you bow your heads with me? Oh. You're going to play the sappy music behind this prayer. Heavenly Father, I, I, just, I thank you, God, for the moms and dads and, and all the... Uh, I, I, can't, I can't listen. 
uh, man, this whole sermon was just a major miserable disappointment. Why? Because it falls down on every standard given in Scripture for what a sermon's supposed to be. You're supposed to preach the word, and Jesus himself makes it clear that all the passages of Scripture are about him. So we got a lot of God talk in this leadership thing that was masquerading as a sermon, but we didn't really hear God's word. We didn't hear, I mean, the one time we heard anything that remotely sounded like it had anything to do about the, about the cross, it was just an example for you to follow. See, Jesus laid down his life, so you need to lay down your life. Got it? Get going. And, and then, oh man, I've never heard anybody, anybody, take a passage from Jesus's baptism as basically an, it's showing us that God the Father did that so that he can set an example for us to follow so that we could affirm our family and our children. Let's talk about completely missing the point of, of the biblical text. But see, here's the deal. The sermon that you just heard, that's par for the course for preaching in America right now. That's par for the course. Okay, I I happen to have the world's largest collection of rotten sermons sitting on in my iTunes library on my computer. I, we're talking let me look here. Okay, I'm I'm looking at the number here on my uh, on my computer. I've got close to 200 gigabytes of bad sermons. And this is not like way off the charts, way off the road, we're off-roading that kind of bad. This is the standard. This is your standard grassroots everyday sermon that's coming from most pulpits in America. And my question is this, how on earth is a sermon like this supposed to make disciples? How on earth does this even remotely rise to the, the level of what is commanded from, for a preacher to be doing? How on earth are we supposed to disciple the nations when this is the standard sermon of, you know, at least style and, and content of what people are getting Sunday after Sunday at church? I mean, good night. This doesn't have the power to make anybody do anything Christian or to even think like a Christian. God's word is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Why don't you preach it? Instead, you know, it's like we cut it off here, shave it off there, rip a verse here, take a, take a sentence there, half sentence here, weave it all together, and it comes out as some kind of a life tip pep talk. I'm going to be stepping on your toes. I'm going to be courageously telling you, you need to stand up to the media monster. What you need to do is courageously preach Christ and him crucified. What has happened to the men in the church? This guy's talking about courageous leadership, and that was the most cowardly thing I've ever heard. And it's not an isolated incident. Like I said, this is the normal kind of sermon that I review and don't even play on the program. How on earth is the church to fulfill its mission to make disciples to preach the word? 
to tell the greatest story ever told, call sinners to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, when the church is off topic and has found anything more important to do than doing that. The mission's simple, and we're not fulfilling it. It's time to get back to basics. Take these people's PowerPoints away from them. Take their screens away from them and their rock bands and make these people sit down with an open Bible and teach it. Mm. Just. <laughs> anyway, we can't possibly be effective as a church. We cannot possibly fulfill the Great Commission unless we do what we're told to do, and that's to preach all of it. Everything. Make disciples, preach the word, proclaim Christ and him crucified for our sins. You can't fulfill the Great Commission if you're doing anything other than that. And you don't have time to waste. But see, that's what's happening. All the time is being wasted. It's like we're procrastinating. Too busy playing video games, too busy entertaining people, too busy trying to figure out how to be relevant. Knock it off. Sit down, open up the book, and start teaching it. Do it a cappella. You get what I'm saying? Let's get back to basics. Preach the word. Pray. Praise. Give thanks. Sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs that preach Christ and crucified for our sins. And stop trying to think that you have to convince the unconvinced. Evangelism is about raising the dead, and only God's word does it through the preaching of the gospel. So preach the gospel and let God figure out who he's going to raise from the dead. Can't fulfill the mission with this kind of stuff. Can't do it. In fact, this is completely powerless. Complete, powerless to make courageous leaders. Powerless to make disciples. Powerless... Oh, man. Anyway, you get what I'm saying here. I'm At this point, I'm just grinding. <sighs> anyway, so what would you think? You know, if you'd like to email me your feedback, you can. Um, my email address, if you'd like to contact me, is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Just a reminder, this is listener-supported radio. If you don't already support us, visit our website. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.